one of the key rules um, in acquisitions from day one for us was we will never acquire something that a deposit or a company that has a deposit will never acquire something that needs a higher gold price and or expiration success to justify the purchase price. Yeah. So if you're going to look at a Focola, you can't say, well, okay, it's four million ounces, but it could be eight, so we're going to overpay for it. Well, you don't know the four, the other four is going to be there. So don't pay for something that needs a higher gold price to justify your purchase price or expiration success to justify it. Because you can't control those two things, the gold price or expiration success, you don't control. That sounds really simple. And every time I say that in the past, I expect people to go, well, duh. Doesn't everybody do that? The sad reality in 10 years ago was very few were doing that. It was, well, don't worry about it. Gold's going to go higher or this thing's going to get bigger or both. We should pay over, pay for it, and we'll, we'll look good down the road. That's a terrible business strategy when you really think about it. This is Canadian Market Watch, the podcast where your co-hosts, Jim Check and George Sanders, dive into the economy of Canada with industry experts. They cover mining, oil and gas, forestry, agriculture, manufacturing, and everything in between. Asking lots of questions, tough questions. If it's impacting the Canadian economy, they're talking about it. Welcome to Canadian Market Watch, another episode with Jim and George. Today we have a special guest. We have Clive Johnson of B2 Gold, and maybe George can give us a better introduction. I think, George, you've ran into him a couple of times earlier on in your in your brokerage days. Well, uh, Clive and I first crossed paths uh, uh, early in both of our careers uh, when uh, Clive was in the exploration business, uh, moving on into the uh, development and production business. So, Clive, why don't we have you give us a very brief background, and then I can start some questions about that beginning and uh, subsequent growth. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks, guys, for for having me on. Um, Pleasure to be talking with you. Um, A a brief history is that's the first challenge of of the call, because 40 years is a little hard to to make a break, but I'll I'll try. Um, Yeah, I mean, I basically fell into the the exploration and mining industry by complete accident after finishing high school in Vancouver. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I worked and saved some money in a, in a year traveling in Australia, largely on my own, and working. Um, so but when I came back, that was a very important year in, in my life in terms of growing up and, you know, all um, sorts of adventures. But I came back from that, deciding it was time, you know, to get on with my education. And, but I, I came from pretty... Um, Humble means. My parents are both Im- immigrated from from Liverpool, uh, worked across Liverpool, and then got to Canada. So they worked hard to raise four kids, and we, we came from pretty <clears throat> humble beginnings, which uh, which <clears throat> I think we learned a lot early about being independent and self sufficient. So we need to immediately go to school and and then um, make uh, sorry make some money to go to school. So I so I got a lot when I got to Australia, I got a job. My brother helped get a job as a line cutter, a claim staker for for a little group of guys and that's what we were doing at the university the same for my brother. And then and the group of guys we were working with for Bina Industries, which I think about I don't know, seventy seven, seventy eight here. So for some years we worked uh, in the Bushes Lanka as a flame shakers and that that was good. We made enough money to pay for university and after a couple of years of doing that, the little company called Bina Industries was starting to grow and I had a decision point to make go back to university for a third year at UVic, uh studying arts or to stay with Ministries and see where it went. 
So I decided to stay with B Ministries and go back and finish my arts degree later on. I'm still waiting to go back and finish my arts degree. So, <laughs> so and maybe I maybe I will <laughs> so at some point. Um but I um so that so so um from that point on we were good at what we did. We built B Ministries into a pretty significant mining exploration contracting services company, mine cutting, claims, taking camp building, all that stuff, primarily in BC and the Yukon. And we grew very rapidly. So at a pretty candy age in my early 20s, I was running the Yukon operations, which consisted of, I don't know, a few hundred people, more than that, actually, doing various jobs all throughout the Yukon. Um, but we, we impressed a couple of large firms as contractors, and so we got to transform ourselves into consultants as well. So we had some good geologists and we did a variety of things, sometimes running entire exploration programs for Canada, Thompson, companies like that with hundreds of people, but also doing other smaller jobs spread out all over the place. So it was quite a successful business, but the problem with that is it was pretty seasonal, being exploration work, and you were at the whim of the big company's budget. So so long story short, in the early 80s, we were trying to figure out what to do with this challenging business, and we decided to go public. So we thought we would tap into the banking stock exchange, and we would be one of the successful because we were hardworking guys, some good geologists, and thought we'd go find the gold lines for ourselves and shareholders instead of for, for big companies. So that was an interesting growth for profile starting in the early 80s. And we had three companies at one time, Gold Mine Resources, a near mine, and then we added Beam International. And uh, you know, we had some we had some, some exploration success, and we actually merged the three companies together in 1988 to, to form uh, Beam Gold. So that's a bit of the history there. So I won't go into details of all three companies because it'll take us a long time. So we had three exploration companies, merged them into one, realizing one was better than three. And uh, But part of my challenge there for me was to understand this thing called the Bank of Stock Exchange back in you know the early 80s, how to raise money, um, how to promote, you know, how to finance. And that was a lot of it. I just sort of felt that my brother and I on the business side of things to start figuring some of that out. So... We had a good bunch of guys, good partnership, good technical and exploration, and then we ran into the bank of the stock exchange. And for the first couple of years, we um, we had a lot to learn. We kind of got our head into us. We just pitching hardworking guys in the bush, and um, any bust of the geologist doesn't mean you're going to succeed in the bank of the stock exchange. So we learned a lot quickly about how to raise money, about how to go tell a tell a credible story, and from that we we started on as a good initial inspiration success in places like Idaho, uh, et cetera. So in uh, the Vina years in the late 80s, we decided to we build our first mine, the Champagne Mine in Idaho, which is a small, about 100,000 ounces of gold driven year, open pit, deep bleach gold and silver mine, but it was a success. And on the back of that, we ended up going down to Chile, and obviously we're very successful in Chile. So that was the Vina gold days, where we, uh, we discovered the Refugio, or drove off the Refugio deposit in Chile, uh, and then a major Syracuse discovery. Over those years, so those years it was um, those years in the market it was growing Bima and ended up growing Bima into a pretty significant company. And of course, one of the big the transitions we made we did Chile, we went to South Africa, and then we ultimately went to Russia, which was a, a huge decision to throw the forest to Russia. That was in the late '90s that we took on Russia. Um, and during that, sometime during the '90s, I guess that we were transitioning the company from. Exploration to production, and as you guys know from your experience, it's very unusual for an exploration company to become a successful gold producer. Most of the time, uh, they're such different businesses. The people that are good at exploration, if there are very few that are fortunate to find something of economic value, my view, they shouldn't try and become miners. 
they should do what often happens, which is sell to a company like ours or a friendly takeover or or bring in a partner. Um, and most producers, which is interesting, I find most producers aren't very good at exploration. They're not very entrepreneurial. So the idea in the mid-90s was to transition BEMA from an exploration company that had some good success, um, but more into a builder of our own minds. Um, and in order to do that, I realized we had to pretty significantly change the company. So we brought in some additional executives into our team. Kenny Barry Raymond came on board, and he was very important in this transition. But at the end of the day, I really modeled the early days, we modeled the early days of BEMA. I would say we took the Barrick model, the early days of Barrick, which was looking at Looking at this, the key to succeeding in IP in this industry is to have you know being entrepreneurial, but at the same time being very good at the bricks and mortar. So if you look at Peter Monk as the entrepreneur and Bob Smith and his technical team, that's yeah, right on. I looked at that, you know, I, I looked at that and I thought, well, that's you know that's pretty interesting. So what what we decided to do, or what we actually did with Dima in transitioning from exploration to production, was change the company, but I wanted to maintain that expiration expiration slash entrepreneurial part of who we were because it had been very successful. So in order to keep Tom Garrigan, our senior VP exploration, happy with the exploration team, how do you do that when you're becoming a producer? Because if you're going to let the producers run the show completely, you're going to lose your best exploration guys. They're going to quit. And they're going to go and try, and try and do it all over again. So I, what we found as challenge was to how do you bring in really top-notch engineering to build minds and run them? <clears throat> but how do you continue being entrepreneurial and keep your and And that was the way. So uh, we brought in George Johnson that became a very, very important player. He was a heckler for 15 years. And George, I and, and encouraged George to join us as CDVP operations uh, to turn us into a, a, a good mind builder uh, and operator. And George was a huge part of our success on that side of it. So, so my, my vision of success in this industry was to have a, comp- a, country, a company that's very entrepreneurial still being prepared to go where other skates tread, which we've been on all over the world, and being entrepreneurial enough to be prepared to take the risks of exploration, but at the same time, be really good at the bricks and mortars. Because this isn't just a lesson for mining, it's about business in general. The, the discoverer or the entrepreneur, the inventor of something is not usually the guy who's CEO once you start making the widget that he's invented. I, I thought, why can't we have it all for our shareholders? Why can't we be very entrepreneurial. Why can't we be discoverers, entrepreneurs, and the same company be one of the best gold, best builders of gold mines in the world, and be a tremendous responsible operator of gold mines worldwide, and a very profitable company? So that was that was the vision, and that means to get there was to have a very diverse team, of, but be, be driven by good entrepreneurial business. But what's the point of me going out there promising things if you don't deliver on the things that we promised that we're going to do? So. So I would, would summarize this. Uh, what's one of the keys to our success is that ability to be to be entrepreneurial, but at the same time, you have to make some orders. <clears throat> I think there's very few people that have accomplished that combination. And though that's that's one of the fundamental principles with which we created or at least transformed Beamable, <clears throat> then that carried on to be too great. Yeah. Uh, Clive, that was one of my one of my early questions was to talk about the transition from entrepreneurial explorer to being efficient operator. And as you correctly uh, uh, stated, very few uh, entrepreneurial exploration promoter-driven companies can make that transition like you guys have made. Uh, I I don't see any point in 
going over that any any further because you you gave a, a quite detailed and articulate uh, explanation of, of how you did that. Maybe just cap that off though. While you were transitioning from uh, exploration and an entrepreneurial driven spirit to the bricks and mortar of mind building. What were, besides bringing those people in, how did you change the culture within your team to start seeing the integration of both sides of the equation? Right. Well, I think the, well, I think first of all, I mean, the, the explorationist, Tom and his group, they were open to the idea of the company transitioning into becoming a producer. But I think the, the key was they needed to know what was their place in, in, in that. Because as you know, most producing companies, not all, but many producing companies, expiration sort of a, they tend to have an office on a much lower floor, maybe no yeah. windows. <laughs> they, you know, they're, they're sort of seen as guys, so you have to find it and they find something. But what's the first thing everybody cuts when times are tough, they cut expiration to the bone, uh, which I've always argued against. So we've always maintained a decent expiration budget. So you have to take reality into consideration. But at the end of the day, um, I think it was the it was it was finding a structure whereby the expirations could feel that they were still important in the company and not just feel it but, but prove it to them. Uh, and that comes down to a trust issue. So I had an interesting conversation with George Johnson when I was trying to entice him to join us because I said, you know, George expected that I would he would be probably you know offered the job of COO, chief operating officer, which is pretty typical, and everything technical would report to George. And I said to George, well, that that's really not the vision that I have. I'm, I said, I, I want you to be senior VP operations, and it's important that you understand that, that, that you know, expiration is never going to report to you. And George said, uh, okay, well, you know, that's unusual. Why is that? I said, because they're all quit. <laughs> and, and I said, George, I said, it's not personal, but really the best expiration journalists in the world, the good ones, the ones that find gold, and there's, there's, you know, there's lots of good jobs out there. It's very tough business, as you guys know. But the best of them will quit before they report to a mining engineer. Yes. Just you know, the whole idea of having a mining engineer who's a bricks and mortar guy, having your R&D department, your exploration department, who, who have to have vision and they have to think outside the box, and, and, and it, it's as much art as science with those guys. To have the idea of having those guys reporting to someone, by definition, as an engineer, has to be a key discipline, really focused on budgets, really focused on every, on every dollar. That never made sense to me as a business model. So we have a very flat structure. So Tom Garrigan and George Johnson both reported to me but we had a very small group of executives who worked extremely well together. So the key to a transition like that is there's not only reporting lines in their structure. The bigger key to that is, is, is mutual trust and earned respect. So I'm sure there were times where George would be sitting in a meeting with our executives and we were talking about a financing alternative. And I could see George starting to get a little distracted, thinking, why am I, why am I listening to this conversation? It's really been nothing to do with me. But that's part of my, my business strategy and my leadership strategy. The knowledge is key. The more people understand about what each other does, the more likely they're to respect each other. So that's been something that's been a driving force here for 30 odd years, has been communicate, 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 and make sure everyone really gets a broad view of what we're doing and what we're all doing. But I think that was a big part of the transition. And now we have a situation where we have a geology, exploration, and engineering team that work together so well. It, 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 it's just fantastic. Uh, there's always going to be a low tension sometimes. But that's, that's okay as well. But at the end of the day, there's a mutual respect. And I see many companies, to be honest with you, in the traditional model, I really don't see that. And that's something I think that well, I am most uh, pleased and proud about is the way we've done this. But also, we've taken that further because we've taken that to safety. We've taken that to CSR. Uh, we've taken that to our environment approach, just this discipline approach 
but open communication. Well, I, I just try to do try to do what we said from day one, which is treat everyone the way like we treat it. Fairness, respect, and transparency. Those are the pillars of our culture. And I think what we just going through COVID, I tell you, it's amazing how well it's worked with our people and our governments and the countries we've worked in. So I'm veering off a little bit there, but that's in the long answer to your question. But well, no, that's great. That's the, that's exactly what I was hoping that uh, our readers could hear. And uh, kudos to you for that. And you know, as I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing that uh, your your cultural model, your leadership model, your business structure, your business model, however you want to frame uh, what you just said, is applicable across all businesses and not just applicable in the mining business. So kudos to you guys for for being able to do that. Uh, Let me take you back to to, um, uh, earlier days when uh, when you and I first uh, uh, got to know each other um, because uh, you used to come in on a regular basis uh, every couple of weeks and, and say hi to me. Uh, at that point, I was, uh, uh, we used to call them in those days, a stockbroker. And I, mm-hmm. repre- I represented a, a serious U.S. client base uh, who were all significant shareholders in Amir and Normine and then participants in Emerge Emerged Team and uh, uh, followed followed closely the, the development of the Champagne Mine from basically an idea when you guys would come in and say, we're going to be the next great small mine operators uh, all the way to, to fruition. And uh, uh, so, so let me, let me bring you back uh, to that time. Uh, you mentioned in your, in your introduction that you, uh, you said, you know, we, we had a pretty steep learning curve when, when we came public on the old Vancouver stock exchange. But but I'd like you to, to chat just a little bit about uh, the value of Canadian speculative markets to successful resource development, <clears throat> from the perspective of what happened with you guys in in Bima and then Chile, Russia, and then D2 Gold. Sure. Yeah. No. I think that I think it's a really interesting topic. It was very easy to be. For outsiders, particularly, but for people in general, to be very dismissive of the Vancouver Stock Exchange in the kind of days when you and I were, when you were trying to make some money for your clients and looking for ideas and backtracking to the back, which you did, and that which and what we were were trying to do in being one of those groups. The old, the whole idea that um, and the Vancouver Stock Exchange was pretty wild and crazy, as you and I know. <laughs> Many people don't know lots of the stories, but it was pretty. It was wild and crazy. And there was there was definitely some bad actors around, and there was definitely uh, some bad promoters around, and some some brokers that were not exactly um, you know the, on the green side as well. But but I think one of the things I've always felt was a misconception was that anybody involved in this exploration, world exploration, we're all basically you know sort of trying to make money for ourselves and promoting penny stocks and then dumping them, and we really are aren't serious people, and we're actually semi almost corrupt or criminal. And, and my point has always been to people that the reality, unfortunately, of the, the exploration business, the gold exploration business, is how difficult it is. Because so few gold mining companies actually, gold exploration companies actually succeed, isn't because of bad people. There's some of that. But the biggest single reason why most gold exploration companies don't become producers or don't find economic minimization and get bought out at some great price for their shareholders is because gold is so rare and it's so hard to find in economic quantities. Yep. 
So there's a double-edged sword in a way here. You don't want to tell investors like, look, you know, this is a long shot. Um, and, you know, so very few companies succeed. So, you know, we want to tell stories and, and, and hopefully stories and paint rainbows with hopefully pots of gold at the end of those rainbows. But the harsh reality of it is the people who invest in gold exploration should accept the reality of, of that there's a reason why if you, if you if the company hits, it's a 10-bagger or a 100-bagger. Because it's very it's a very high risk proposition. You know, I've always joked in the past that sometimes the Vancouver Stock Exchange and Gold Exploration was a bit like a bit like the odds in Vegas, except in Vegas at least the drinks are free. But, I mean that's a, the reality of it is so I, I really push back on people saying, you know, Vancouver, terrible bunch of actors, they're all basically pillows, don't even think about the investing in Vancouver Stock Exchange and listed companies. I would I would say that's not fair and uncharacteristic, and I would put a huge caveat on that, which is buyer beware. And I often felt that promoters and the brokers sometimes didn't quite do as much as good a job as they could have with their clients or their people they're promoting to in really explaining to them what the risks of the business really are. The risks of the business aren't that the promoters or criminals uh, or, or the brokers are not, are, are, are not good at making judgment. The real risk of mining exploration is the sheer odds against finding something with economic value. So I, I think that there's a real role to play, and we're a great example. There's a number of groups, there's a number of very successful groups that came out of the Vancouver Stock Exchange and BMA B2 or whatever. No, 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 BSA, no, no, BMA, no, B2 gold. It's that simple. So there's a very strong role for that. I just think that people have to understand the risks. So therefore, what's the best way to mitigate risk in mining exploration? Well, don't play with money you can't afford to lose. But secondly, in my mind, it's all about experience. If I'm going to invest in any company, I want to know what the principles have done before. So two key things I look for, what have they done before? Do they have a track record of success? So even though it's a high-risk proposition, what are my odds of having success with these guys if they've done it before, but better than if they haven't done it before? And the other thing I always look for is skin in the game. Now, if I'm going to invest in a business, I want people that I'm talking to to have skin in the game, not just stock options. Right? I'd like to put a founder the company. Uh, we were the founders of Dima. Uh, a group of us are the founders of B2 Gold. Uh, we own a significant amount of shares. We're on the same page as our shareholders because we're founders of the company. We've never been criticized for a compensation because we're looking at it from the point of view of what's fair for our shareholders to pay the executives of the company. And I don't see enough of that. And I think, you know, I've, I've taken steps. When we started being too gold, it's not just me. This isn't about the Clive show. It's all about team, and I talk about it all the time. The critical part of myself on the business side, but well, what am I going to do without the incredible geologists, engineers, the financial people, all these people? So when we started B2 Gold, the founder shares were spread amongst our executive group um, in, in, in a very fair way because I believe in the scene of the game. And these guys are, along with myself, the founders of the company. So don't be greedy when you're in my situation or you're founding a company. If you're going to talk team, you got to walk the talk. But when you look at investing in, in startup and expiration companies, Bottom line, beware the risks, but you can mitigate the risks a little bit by not overextending your investment, but also picking carefully who you invest in uh, and at the end of the day. Um, you know, choose your broker carefully, uh, also choose your investments carefully. But, it's, but I think it's been, it's been too much maligned and too easily to dismiss the banking stock exchange historically and to some extent expiration today even by saying that the people that are doing it are motivated simply by trying to sell shares at a higher price. I think that's unfair. There's a lot of good players. But a good expiration people, and I really thought to see them starting to come to the end. Yeah, well, that's uh, well said. You you hit on many uh, many of the points that uh, Jim and I have discussed on earlier podcasts. Uh, 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 
recognizing that uh, all startup businesses, not just gold exploration, but all startup businesses are high risk propositions. And uh, the, the, the best way to, uh, to mitigate those risks is to invest with people who've done it before and been there and have been successful. So, uh, so thanks, thanks for your input on that. Switching gears a little bit, um, you guys have been, again, as an entrepreneurial company, you guys have been successful in a number of sort of out there jurisdictions. You've been successful in Central and South America, in Africa, in the Philippines, and in Russia. And that's, again, highly unusual for an entrepreneurial company. How did you guys grow those talents to deal with the challenges of foreign jurisdiction? Yeah, great great question. I think that um, a number of points, I guess, I'd make on that. I, I think it comes back to, you know, the point of, of, of culture. But even backing up beyond that, you know, for a long time ago, Tom Garrigan convinced me, or at least, you know, we talked about it, and Tom said, you know, he, he said the best gold deposits in the world aren't necessarily in the places we want them to be. Uh, they're not all in Nevada or Ontario. So we, from, from 40, you know, 40 years ago, were, we tried to be driven more by geology than geography. So we said, why don't we see where, where the best opportunities in the world are, and why don't we see which of those places are places we think we can be safe working in, but can raise money, and where are the governments open the building lines, et cetera, et cetera. So that was sort of a long-term as a core philosophy about what we were trying to do. So if you have that open-minded view and, and about geography, uh, about geology and geography, then, then it opens your mind to being willing to go other places. So that was part of it. So, you know, we went to Chile in 1988, and everybody goes back to that now and goes, well, that was an operator. Chile's been a phenomenal country for, for gold discoveries, copper, et cetera. But it wasn't back in those days at all. No, it so, wasn't. I remember, yeah, I remember that. Exactly. You know, Pinochet was in power, and um, and, and then South America was, had been devastated economically, not just Chile, and it was a very contrary move. But that's that's one of the, the keys to our success, is to, is to be open-minded and look at the country and and do some research, not just about the geology, but about you know, maybe my brief university career studying political science <laughs> came into play a little bit, because part of due diligence is looking at the political situation in the country and looking for countries that are on the verge of um, economic political transition. And Chile is a great example, because when we went to Chile with, with, with a lot of detractors of the country and of our decision to go looking for coal there, you know, it was the largest copper producer in the world since 1902. So there's a lot of compromisation, which is often can be associated with gold, but, but there's was, there was clearly gold potential there. But we went and we did our homework, and we believed that Pinochet was going to walk and talk. Pinochet talked about turning Chile into a free market economy and a democracy, uh, both, of, both of which he did with great success. So our timing was perfect. In 88 Chile, the next 11 years were called the Chilean Economic Miracle, yep. and we were, part of, we were part of that. So that's one of the keys, because we recognized it before everyone else did. The next thing you know, everyone's going to Chile after after us looking for gold, which is great. It's good for Chile, and it's good for also shareholders of different countries. They, they made money as well. So it was that willingness to think outside the box, and then Thomas, tremendous team, did a great job of Rafukio and then Sarah Casale, which showed in the production years ago, huge discovery in Chile of gold copper deposits. So, so that's one example of learning in Russia and other places, looking at the country and judging it for what it is, and, and really trying to narrow down to can you, you know, do they want us there? Can can we raise money to go work there in that country? Can our people be safe? That's one priority. 
And do we have a country that wants us there? We want to be in countries that need the weapons. And coming through COVID, I can tell you, one of the reasons we've been so successful in the last couple of quarters during COVID is because we're in countries where the government trusts us and our employees trust us, and everyone wanted to keep mining because it's so important in their country's economies as long as we could do it safely. So there's an interesting angle on that. But the, the key to our, the key to our sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, Clive, I was just going to say that's a great segue to, uh, to talk about uh, uh, corporate social responsibility. And my, my personal opinion is one of the reasons that B2 has become uh, one of the go-to gold stocks uh, in, in, in the last year uh, is not only your profitability and your growth profile and, and all of that sort of stuff, but you really do have an outstanding record of corporate social responsibility. And so, so talk a little bit about, again, uh, part of the culture and how you put that together and, and know the benefits you're seeing from that and, and maybe some of the initiatives that you're doing with this uh, Rhino coin. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that the CSR ties very well into this whole culture. I'm talking about the cultural idea of fairness, respect, and transparency. One of the reasons that Beam and B2 Gold were so successful in places where sometimes others fear the threat, where there was clearly some political risk, of course. But if you're going to go, one of the key reasons to success is delivering on the promises you make, not just in business, but I think in life. That's how you earn people's trust and gain credibility with people. So if you go as a CEO, as I've done a number of times around the world, Nicaragua, Russia, whatever, these countries and Namibia and all of these, and you meet with the senior lead, the president of the country, which is kind of in most cases, and you sit down as a Western businessman from a good country, Canada, so you have a good intro to start, a Canadian passport. But you go on and you sit down with the president of, of Nicaragua and he says, I like Canadians, but I'm worried about what you're doing because the been bad in my country. And you spend, you know, two hours, it was supposed to be a 40-minute meet week uh, 12 years ago, and you spend two hours with the president of Nicaragua because he's interested in and the meeting carries on. And you make all these promises. You tell him, yes, you're right, mining has been bad in Nicaragua because small mining has been unregulated and it's caused poisons. A lot of people and it's hurt the environment. We want to come in and we want to build a mill in the Libertad um, and make it our second mine in, in Nicaragua. And here's how we're going to do it. And I asked for the meeting with the president because I want to make the case very early on, 12 years ago. So we sat down and we told him, here's what we want to build. Here's the jobs we'll create. Here's the taxes we'll pay. Here's what we'll do in CSR. Here's what we'll do not only to protect the environment, so to, here's some of the, what we'll do to actually mitigate the damage from the past and improve the environment in the areas we work in. So we laid out a very detailed plan to him over two hours. Unfortunately, you know, I'm not the technical guy, so I brought along a couple of our engineers who knew what they were talking about in those areas. And it was, it was a very, very interesting meeting. At the end of the two hours, President Ottawa looked at me and he said, well, he said, that's great. He said, you know, if you can do all that in my country and you, you can do that in my country, the people in my country, you have my full support. So we left the meeting. I, I turned to Dale Pablo and I said, uh, guys, you know, uh, that was great. Good job, good meeting. But we just made a lot of promises to the president of the country. I think it's really important we deliver. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So, so, so you deliver on the promises. We did everything we said we were doing Nicaragua more. We transformed gold mining in Nicaragua. Recently, we did a deal to bend our, our smaller gold projects because they're smaller now for us around in Caliber. But a very successful deal to continue the legacy of what we've done. We became the largest taxpayer in the country. Gold mining, we were by far the largest gold miner and gold 
gold became the largest export out of Nicaragua during our tenure there. A fantastic success story. And the president never forgot that. So if you're going to go to these countries and make promises, people, the local governments, the federal governments, to everybody, it's really incumbent on you to deliver the promises uh, and, and show fairness and transparency. I find it interesting when there are some companies, CEOs, no CEO is going to sit down and say, you or anybody else, yeah, we went to XYZ uh, country, we made these promises, we didn't perform, so now the government's after us to increase our taxes. Because the government's sitting there going, you made all these promises, we haven't delivered, finally, it took two more years to go. It's not near as profitable as you claimed. I'm increasing your tax because I look bad to my citizens. You didn't deliver, and I have to get some money out of you somehow. The CEO is not going to tell you that story. He's going to say the government's trying to screw us. Yeah. So a lot of times when you see people getting in trouble in countries with what they call political risk, dig a little deeper. This is often because they haven't delivered. So we've gone all over the world and demon too. And what do we have in common in every country we went to? We succeeded. Why did we succeed? Largely because we were great corporate citizens and we treated people with fairness, respect, and transparency, and we delivered on the promises that we made. That is the simplest way to succeed in most industries that I find. Treat people well and deliver on the promises you made. That's one of the keys. Yeah, wow. And, and, and again, uh, that's applicable in all sorts of different businesses, not just the mining. So we, we, we noticed um, uh, qu- uh, quarter over quarter, you had a huge cash build. Uh, you've upped your dividend. Uh, you have uh, uh, projected in, in your MDNA, I think, uh, 900 million free cash flow for uh, 2020. Um, obviously, uh, the beneficiary of the increased precious metals prices uh, but also your costs are, I don't know where they fit five in the whole uh, percentile, but they're certainly, uh, they certainly have to be uh, in the lower range of the major producers. Um, so to me, that is presenting some capital allocation challenge. Uh, in other words, I, I see some of these companies all of a sudden making way more money than they ever anticipated and perhaps not having a pipeline of projects to uh, allocate that capital towards uh, a number of companies have already increased dividends. So I'd like you to talk about the the, 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 the good challenge uh, in this environment of effective capital allocation uh, and maybe answer it in, in two ways. First, for B2, and then second, what your thoughts are for the industry. Sure. Well, I, I think that um, just to just to clarify, the 900 million is some cash flow operations we're projecting this year. A significant portion of that would be free cash flow, but out of that has to come some of the capital to, to complete the expansion, which we're doing uh, at the Pecola mine in Mali and other other normal capital allocations. But but you're right, substantial, huge amount of gross profit and a big chunk of that is free cash flow, which allows us to not only fund um, uh, other additional potential projects like Gravelati in the pipeline coming up, but also pay a very healthy dividend. Before Barrick increased their dividend yesterday, I think we were the highest yield dividend in all space at 2.3%. Um, but the key is to be able to, the best of both worlds, reward our shareholders with the dividend, but also have a, take some of the cash flow operations to use it towards doing what I think all or a lot of our shareholders want us to do, which is to successfully continue to go production. So that, that, that's, that's kind of the balance. I think we're in this really interesting position. I think we've earned our place to be in this position by doing 
something very contrarian over the last five or even 10 years, which was to build gold mines during that time. But if you go back to building Doge Fertilite in Namibia well, seven years ago now, I guess, and then building um, the Fakola mine in Mali, those were pretty contrarian moves because at that time, unfortunately, because of the largely because of bad management, let's be honest about it, bad, bad acquisition, so overpaying process, now growth at any cost, uh, bad construction, bad everything, uh, bad geological resource estimate. The whole industry has lost billions of dollars over the last 10 years, most most of the industry, not because the gold price went down. Um, that's that's why building gold mines in the last five years was extremely contrary, which just seems, sounds ludicrous. But it was contrary and it was frowned upon because so many companies had really just messed it up so badly that people looked at even us with architect and said, we can't buy your stock because you're growing. <laughs> you can only buy companies with your cash flow. And I was saying, well, you know, we're, we're, we've got these good projects and they make a lot of sense to build in the global environment we're in. And we can finance them without equity, without diluting our shareholders. So we're going to stick with our long-term strategy. And I'm really glad we did that. So because of that, we don't have to play the acquisition game now. We don't have to compete with everybody else who didn't do it. Not everyone. Most gold companies didn't do what we did in the last 10 years. They either didn't see the opportunity, they didn't have the balls, which takes courage and balls to be contrarian, um, or they just weren't prepared to stand up to their shoulders and say, we hear you. Some of you were here that you don't want us to build a lot of it. Our, our responsibility is to try and build value for you, so we're going to go and do it anyway. So at the end of the day, variety of reasons. We were prepared to be, and have always been prepared to be contrarian, stick with a long-term strategy, contrarian in the short term. So we're sitting here today, and we're a million ounces are out there this year, $800 or less all sustaining costs, making us the lowest of our peers for all sustaining costs to produce gold. That allows us to be completely debt-free. We're net debt-free now. We'll, we're paying back our lines in the next month. We'll be completely debt-free by the end of August, and we'll have you know, cash in the bank of a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, generating huge amounts of cash flow as you know talked about over the next this year and going forward. So incredible position to be in as a, as, a, as a company. But we don't have to go out now and compete with all these other companies that didn't grow in the last few years. And to, you know to give credit, some of them learned lessons and some of them got their act together. They they you know they dropped some of their projects that were not making any sense and they got more disciplined. They 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 became more like like Nico Eagle and more like ourselves and a few others. So that's been a good thing. But now all of a sudden you see companies in production that was, was static or declined in the last five years. What are they going to do now? Unfortunately, because of the negative approach or the negative view of the global sector for the last 10 or 15 years, as you guys know so well, very little money was spent on exploration. Yep. So we don't have a lot of colas out there. We don't have a lot of projects ready to go. That's a problem. But we have Gramolati in the pipeline, which I don't think the market's fully understanding. Gramolati is going to be, in my opinion, a very good mine. And we'll get a completed feasibility study by the end of the first quarter of next year. And I expect to make a production decision with our partner, Angel Gold Shanti, if they, if they want to stay in the deal. But I think we're going to go ahead and, as an operator, build the Grand Lockheed Mine uh, in Columbia. It's going to be low cost. You know, the, the recent economic numbers of the PEA we released last year were uh, estimating over 400,000 ounces a year out of the gate uh, with low uh, sustaining costs at around 615 ounces. Now, we're doing infill drilling now to bring the whole thing up to reserve status. We're not expecting any surprises. But at the end of the day, if those economics stay the same, it's about $900 million capital to build it. That's a great project. There aren't many of those in the world today. So I see that going. That's been on our pipeline for a while. We also have the CACA deposit in Burkina Faso, which is low-grade, uh, is low-grade, and needs higher gold prices. 
We're seeing higher gold price. We're revisiting that not just because gold is higher, because of some different key cost components like power is coming down dramatically, et cetera, et cetera. So that, and we have also the potential for what else is the Coca-Cola. We acquired Coca-Cola with no competition, wrapped a billion dollars five years ago. Hard to believe. Talk about contrarian. No competition. So now it's we've gone from four million ounces to eight million ounces. We're expanding it second time already to six hundred thousand ounces a year this year. Uh, and and there's a lot more, a lot more to go on Coca-Cola. New discovery five hundred meters away called Cardinal, and some additional new discoveries or, or discoveries to kilometers north of the Colorado continent. We think there's a potential. It's early days, but there's potential for another Coca-Cola or at least a number of economic deposits in the belt. So that's a big focus for us as well. Plus, you know, we're doing exploration worldwide. Two thousand dollars can be one big turn. And we're looking into places like Uzbekistan and the Chinese country government and other countries that have incredible upside uh, potential that have been underexplored. We'll also look at joint ventures with junior, with junior companies along the way. So we're in a, not only are we in a phenomenal shape today in terms of where we sit um, in, in, in terms of financially and where we sit with our share, which has finally been realized in the market, which has been nice to see. But we have a pipeline. We don't have to go out and chase anything. I'm a little worried about what's going to happen here. I think lessons were learned from 10 years ago. I sure hope so, because I hope we don't get back into that growth at any cost. You know, screw the economics. We're just going to grow and produce more gold because that's what I think our shareholders want, which was, I don't think, totally true. I want to see, and I hope to see this industry uh, continue to be more disciplined than it was 10 years ago, because we don't need to see shareholders losing billions of dollars again through mismanagement. Which is what it was. So yeah, and um, and, and often those uh, a number of those moves were sort of market top moves. But you know it 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 and you can speak to this, I'm sure. We're beginning to see more and more Wall Street generalist money uh, nibble into the sector. What are your thoughts about the potential pressure on some of these management teams from new money coming into the sector. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I, I think that you're right. We're definitely seeing a lot more interest in the generals funds. And, and and that's pretty exciting for us because, I mean, I've said below for a long time that I, I, when you look at buying B2 Gold shares, I, I don't really, I mean, I, I say to people, you don't need to buy B2 Gold shares for your exposure to gold. You get your exposure to gold, but you get a company that's highly profitable, you know, pays a healthy dividend. And it's very good at doing what we do, which is responsibly produce gold, take care of the environment, but also grow grow the company. So the, the gold exposure is almost like a, my mind, a bit of a byproduct. Because too many times you would buy a gold company, even though you know, they didn't think it was necessarily the best run business in the world. But if you buy it, probably didn't pay a dividend at all. But it, but but I'm sure exposure to gold. So if you just want exposure to gold, there's ETFs and other ways to do that. Yeah. So I, we've always tried to position us as a company. You want to own the shares, get what we produce. Pretend we produce widgets. If you have a business model like ours, and we started at zero 12 years ago, and now you're a $9 billion Canadian company um, and they're making all this money and it's profitable and paying a dividend, I don't care what you produce. That's a hell of a good business. And it wasn't driven by gold having to go higher. So we've never been gold bucks in that regard. So I, I think that there's a number of good gold producers today, and, and it's really gratifying. We're in the conversation, I think, now in the four or five that generals are talking about. Um, sure, you can own Barrett and Newmont, but are they going to have the dramatic, uh, incredible percentage of, of, of share price increase we've seen over the last, you know, 10 years, you know, 17 minutes, yeah. whatever the hell it is, or over the last year? So I think there's an argument for that, uh, for, for, for us to starting to be seen 
I'm talking to guy, young guys who've never you know, talked, thought about buying a gold company in their lives, <laughs> running general funds, and we used to go dismissive of that kind of crazy gold bucks. So, so, but we need to earn their, we need to earn their trust and their investment by showing them that we are good at running a business. One of my long-term criticisms about a gold mining business is there haven't been enough business when they go mining business. Yeah. Um, mining engineers, by definition, don't make always make great CEOs because they're not so meant to be disparaging. There's great engineers out there, but when it comes to M&A and financing and things like that, it's often a struggle for the highly disciplined mining engineer. Similarly, ex-investment bankers don't necessarily make a good CEO in the gold mining space. Sometimes they're deal junkies. They don't respect the technical. There's been lots of failures in that regard. So, um, so, so I think there's a real place for for being a well-run business in the gold mining space. And I'm glad to see not just as more companies being being better run. But sure, the temptation now will be. You're going to get pressured from some people, as you said, to grow. And how do you do that? How do you do that without changing your 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 rules? Without starting to get in your mind that gold's going to be you know going to be 1900 to 2004 the next 10 years? Because we have no idea what gold's going to do in the next 10 years. Let's just be honest about that. We may have some ideas. So I I, I think that the pressure to grow exploration is going to take a while to 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 bear fruit. It takes a long time for drill to discover from discovery to production. Probably 12 years on average yeah. these days. We've shortened that a lot because of the way we do it, but but I think that's a, that's going to be a problem to watch for. So it's going to be incumbent upon management to at certain times have to tamp down the enthusiasm of some of the shows and to encourage the shows that the slow, uh, credible, profitable growth is much better than trying to take on projects that um, need some help from the gold price or a high gold price to stay or exploration success to succeed. But one of our key rules and acquisitions. I'll just, I'll just make this quick point, but one of the key rules um, in acquisitions from day one for us was we will never acquire something that a you know, deposit or a company that has a deposit will never acquire something that leads a higher gold price and or expiration success to justify the purchase price. Yeah. So if you're going to look at a Focola, you can't say, well, okay, it's formally announced it could be eight, so we're going to overpay for it. Well, you don't know the four, the other four is going to be there. So don't pay for something that needs a higher gold price to justify your purchase price or expiration success to justify it. Because you can't control those two things. The gold price or expiration success, you don't control. That sounds really simple. And every time I say that in the past, I expect people to go, well, duh. Doesn't everybody do that? The sad reality in 10 years ago was very few were doing that. It was, well, don't worry about it. Gold's going to go higher or this thing's going to get bigger or both. We should pay over pay for it. And we'll, we'll look good down the road. That's a terrible business strategy. Think about it. Well, it, it 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 really is. And I I I, uh, I I I was saying to Jim not so long ago. I I really uh, uh, chuckle at the phrase uh, that you hear uh, a lot. Um, well, this project's really levered to higher gold prices, which is another way of saying it can't make any money. Right. Guy, to cut in for a second here. Um, we have about 10 minutes left, and we did promise Katie that we were going to talk about the Rhino Gold Project. So maybe we better move sure. on to that. Yeah, that's great. I uh, uh, Go ahead, Clive. Let's tell our listeners about that. We touched on earlier about um, CSR and ESG, the kind of things that are more and more important for investors to look at. And we really embrace that because we were, we've been doing those things for decades before they had fancy titles. At the end of the day, it's all about this delivering and being good corporate citizens. So uh, there's many, there's some great stuff on our, our website, beachgold.com. If people are interested, there's some great videos that are really uh, interesting about what we're doing all over the world in terms of 
giving back to communities, but also changing the environment, protecting the environment and changing it. So we'll just talk about the Rhino, which many of many great projects, but one of the ones that's that really, I don't know, it's been really embraced worldwide is the, the Rhino Gold Bar. What we've done there is that someone came up there, I've been involved in the Save the Rhino Foundation for some years, personally, <clears throat> and the last place in the world where the, the black rhino still roams free is in uh, northern Namibia. My wife and I went up to the, the Save the Rhino camp up there, the Rhino Trust camp, uh, some years ago, and really became enthralled in trying to support these people that are trying to save this endangered species. Someone in the, in the group came up with this really cool idea. Why don't we take some of the gold from the Yokokoto mine in Namibia, take some of that gold and make um, gold bars with the rhino on them and call them the rhino gold bar and sell them. So we donated last year a thousand ounces of, of uh, gold from the Ochigoto mine to make these gold bars. Um, so it's taking gold that was deposited by a excluding star that then deposited this gold in Namibia some six billion years ago. And it's taking some of that gold and using it <clears throat> to produce and sell gold bars to try and save an animal that's been roaming the planet in Namibia for 50 million years. There's kind of some cool history historic connotations there. But it's kind of a new form of uh, philanthropic conservation, really, as it were. So we produced uh, three different sizes of gold bars, some of the 500 gram ones, which I have, 001 of that one I bought. But then we produced some one ounce and a half ounce gold bar. And uh, we are selling them. The bars are now for sale on Kitco, or you can go through the Beach of Gold website. And we're selling those gold bars, and they're beautiful collector's items. We're selling them at a 15% premium. All the proceeds going to the Save the, the, Save the, Rust, the, Save the Rhino Trust Foundation, which we're involved in working with them in the community and overseeing the expenditures of it. The money is being spent to go to the communities and work every day to try and save the black rhino and also work towards encouraging tourism to come and see the black rhino. So it's become critically important, especially during COVID, because of what's happened to tourism in Africa. So there's even more pressure on poaching of the rhinos now. So this is something that's been really well received worldwide. The bars are selling out pretty rapidly, and most of them are gone, and it's time to collectors in. But because we're selling them at a 15% premium, the premium will ensure that we can make more different bars, but more bars down the road. But we're also in discussions with the government of Namibia to produce the, the, the one-ounce gold rhino coin, which should be the official gold coin of Namibia and feature the rhino. And that would pay up the Canadian Maple Leaf you know, or, or the other countries that have their own gold, their own gold coin. So it's a really cool initiative, and it's a wonderful cause. Uh, we realize how tough things are with COVID, you know, for people. But this is a way to support not only the rhino, but the people in the media that are working so hard uh, to saving the rhino. But we're also involved in other things. I'm involved in the Save the Cheetah Foundation in the media, so maybe we'll do something cheetah-related along the lines to see if we can help another species. But overall, the idea is to not only um, be not proactive in terms of what we can do in terms of people around in the countries we work, and make sure we're giving back and giving them economic opportunity to outlive the minds. What can we do in the world generally? You know, I'll finish with an old expression we've seen used for a long time around here. This is not your grandfather's mining company. Um, and that's one of the things we're most proud of. It's not just the success we've had, we're proud of it's how we've done it. And that's something where it goes back to the culture. And uh, you know, I hope this company's here for 20 years from now, 30 years from now, because I think the culture is, uh, is, is virtually unique in the way we're able to do what we do and the way we're able to um, be good corporate citizens and change the world. I find it very unique in that uh, people get to contribute to something that helps, you know, fill some of that need in a lot of people to help the world in, in different aspects. And then plus they have an investment there that they likely will get more money back on later on. 
they can use that and invest that into something else or give that away to some other charity. I would, exactly. I would say to any listeners, just as uh, just was, as Clive was uh, describing that, I was on the website and there are 690 um, one-ounce bars left at today's price plus the 15% premium. So for a one-ounce uh, gold investment, uh, that won't break the bank and also is contributing to uh, the restoration of the endangered species in Namibia. Uh, fantastic uh, opportunity. So we'll leave that with, we'll leave that with you listeners. <laughs> We've got about two minutes left. Uh, any closing questions, George, or anything you want to add? I, I have none other than to say, uh, uh, Clive, this is the, this is the best interview I've done because, uh, uh just offer you the question and you've given uh full detailed responses and and I think anybody listening to this will uh get a real sense of of why Bema has been an outstanding stock performer I think it it's because uh the investors are are recognizing uh the ter terrific dynamic culture that you've created in this organization so thanks for being with yeah. Yeah, thanks. The, the final thought I would make, I guess, is a, just a shout out to our you know, 4,200 employees around the world. You know, COVID, COVID's been an incredible challenge, and, and uh, but but you couldn't, you couldn't do it without the incredible quality of people we have. And it comes back to this mutual trust, I think. You know, people are working longer hours. They're, they're not having their recreational activities. They're not getting back to their village to see their family as much. But the morale at the sites is extremely high. You know, people appreciate the, the focus on, on on their safety, on not just COVID, but safety in mining. You know, we just finished a quarter without a lost time accident of yeah. any kind in the kind of in the in the company. There's no factory in North America that could boast that accomplishment. You know, safety is key, and that's how you're in people's respect as well to show how serious you are about them buying into the safety. I've always said, if you want to do some short term, do some some shortcut to diligence on a, on a mining company, look at the safety first. If you want to see if it's well run company. Because if you get the safety right, it normally means you do other things well. And if you're not so good at safety, that often means you don't do other things well. Just a tip for you guys and your investors. Yeah, absolutely correct. I have one comment to add as well. And, and I'm a big believer in what you said initially and about follow the people around that you can trust. I was an investor in Arizona Star and Beam of Gold. And, and that's why um, I chose to invest in, in B2 Gold is because of, of what was accomplished earlier on. And I think that's a big thing for people is that they got to find the people, right? Follow, and it doesn't matter what company you're in, software or or mining or what have you. It's all about the people, right? Yeah, well said. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. All right. That, that closes off another session of Canadian Market Watch. Again, thank you, Clive, for joining us. Uh, if, if, if you were a, a rock and roll star, I think we would, uh, George and I would think you were like Mick Jagger or something like that. So you're like a... The rock star of mining. So well, uh, I do like to I, I do like to shake I do like to shake it up on the dance floor a little bit. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, wait, I thanks, guess, Clive. Let's just say let's just say we're rock stars. How about stars of the rocks? Rock stars. Just there, there you go. go. Look at that. We've made something. Jim and, Jim, Jim and George. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for your good good, good interview. Good questions. Thanks for your uh, thanks to you and the uh, and. Um, and your subscribers, uh, it's been a, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thanks. And a big shout out to Katie for getting this all together too. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank Bye you. Now. And that has been another episode of Canadian Market Watch. Thanks for listening. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
If you'd like to provide feedback, ask us a question, or be a future guest on the show, please email podcast at canadianmarketwatch.com. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Canadian Market Watch or on Twitter at CDN Market. Join the discussion. This episode has been brought to you by Nowcast, a division of the Now Media Group, and has been produced by the Nomadic Podcaster.